This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Like the kōkako, the saddleback, or tieke, belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Today we have Professor Garth Jones, emeritus professor at the Department of Anatomy at the Otago University School of Medicine, and his research interests include human anatomy and ethics. He's also written two articles on the financial and management crisis at Otago University. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community or Chaos. Well, welcome to Community or Chaos, Gareth. Yep, thank you very much. You've written two articles uh, <coughs> the crisis at the university. Could you uh, briefly, what led you to want to make a comment about Well, I think in one word, desperation. And desperation because there's no forum in the university for raising issues and for discussing all these proposed redundancies. But I didn't want to condemn the leadership outright or to say exactly what I thought, because I thought, well, a great number of people, particularly uh, letter writers, have done that. But what I wanted to do was to bring to the surface the issues and if I could see if I could get the senior leadership team to address the fundamental ones. I also wanted to bring these to the attention of the university community in general. Now, I was aware at the time that every single member of staff is liable to be made redundant. And there was and still is a huge amount of fear among staff. Uh, perhaps what I often describe as they're petrified. This means that few staff have wanted to lift their heads above the parapet, feeling that if they did, then the chance of them being made redundant would be even higher than otherwise. And it seems to me that this is a tragedy. It's hardly the atmosphere that genders free discussion and trust among staff. So what I hoped that those two articles would be would be to have an educational role in the whole situation. In other words, to get people to think, to reflect, and to ask questions. Do you think that it seems to me that both in the health sector 
in the education, uh, tertiary education, there seems to be an abyss between staff and management, with the result that staff often feel not respected or consulted over decisions that may influence their conditions of work or whether they actually have work. Is this the case at University of Otago? If you'd asked me that, say, um, 10 years ago, I'd have said no. But that's not the answer now. And I would have said uh, it was fine. But the very simple and very sad answer now is an emphatic no. There simply has been no discussion. Everything is top-down. When forums are held, they consist of staff being told what has been decided, and there's a chance for people to ask questions. And this is what is described as consultation. But it's not consultation, at least by my definition. Uh, But there's no, in other words, to-and-fro discussion. And there are no requests for input into central decision-making by any staff across the university. And so I think the result of all this is a profound lack of trust and demoralization as staff feel they are simply being treated like pawns. And I think it's made even worse by the lack of information made available regarding why there is this financial problem. The few details made public and the ones in the ODT are not very convincing. The the information they've gotten, they actually got fairly late, haven't they, in the piece? And I think they've only got a part of the information. But even then, the sta- I mean, the management knew they had problems months before the staff was aware. Oh, yes, and, and that was only admitted this year. Um, I, I mean, for quite a long time, the staff have been told that finance is very tight, they have to cut back on numerous things. But it's not been clear why that is the case, and they haven't been told. Um, but now they are being told, but they are, as I say, I think they're only being given a part of the answer. They're being told that it's all government underfunding, which is partly true, but only partly. It's not because we have, say, 3% fewer lower enrollment by 3% this year, is it? No, not at all. Uh, I mean, the, the decrease that was in Otago this year is actually very small. I mean, much smaller than, for instance, at Victoria. So it's very small. And I mean, anyone looking at the figures that are being quoted and the $60 million that has to be saved or lost or however it's put, I mean, really, anyone really knows that is not due in large part to the number of students. In part it is, but only in small part. Have they gone to a system of expert management? I'm not quite sure what you mean by expert management. Where you bring in people from the outside. Oh, as far as I'm aware, yes, a great great amount of money has been spent on bringing in consultants. Would these consultants be financial consultants, and would they be sympathetic to the aims and purposes of the universities? Uh, As a general rule. Yeah. Well, I assume that is how they sell themselves, but I don't know in detail. But what I can say is that of all the local expertise that's available, it's not being utilized, whether it's in the financial area or other areas. I have a, an acquaintance who works in a, in, in a governmental institution, and this person dislikes 
contracting out. She says it harms the institution, especially in the ability of the institution to make decisions. It harms their uh, their institutional memory, and it's often a big waste of money, and it's always very expensive. I would agree with all those points. I mean, the thing that I, a point that I make repeatedly is across the university, there's a huge amount of expertise, and yet that is not, which you could get for nothing because it'd be part of people's jobs, but that's not being utilized. The question, you know, why, I know you can't answer this fully, but why would they carry on with the building program and the landscaping and a million dollars for a new logo on the very year when they're talking about massive redundancies? I can't answer that. Especially when they knew six months ago or probably longer that they had financial worries. I think very simply, people are bewildered. I mean, no ordinary staff member can begin to understand what's going on. Um, you know, because I, I suppose with many of us, we tend to look about this as, well, you know, with our own house or anything that we own, then we know that uh, there are limits to what we can spend. Uh, and well, if we're at all sensible, we act within budget. Um, and up until, as I say, the recent years, that's what the university has done. But it has ceased doing that now. And why it's gone in this direction, as I say, for most of us, if not all of us there, we simply can't understand it. What were the long-term results of these decision-making by the university during this crisis on the future of the university? I think the simple answer to that is, if there are large numbers of redundancies among academic staff and their support workers, then the future of the university will bear very little resemblance to what it's been known for over many years. I mean, after all, the consequences depend on the scale of the redundancies, and remember that the staff have been given no idea of any long-term plan by the senior leadership team. And so, at the moment, everything is speculative. But maybe what one can say is the university will lose its strong reputation and will possibly no longer be able to boast its research informed if it loses some of its top researchers and scholars, which at the moment it appears could happen. But this all depends on what's cut. Now, I get the impression at the moment that the cutbacks are going to be indiscriminate. In other words, with strong areas being cut as much as weaker ones. Now, whether that eventuates is not known at the moment. But if this happens, the end result could be catastrophic. Um, I mean, take, for instance, an example. Let's say a department of eight academic staff, uh, which is a relatively small department by some standards, but there are many like this, say, in the humanities. Just take that as an example. But it's still able, say, to cover the main areas of their discipline. But if that department, let us say, is reduced to five or six academics, it becomes barely viable. I mean, after all, because then it lacks the breadth of research required for an exciting unit, and the students will have limited options for their study. And the chances are that the staff will be lost, and students will go elsewhere to study in that particular area. Will will they have trouble replacing faculty of high standard when they're able to replace them, if if they do this? I mean, would you want to come to a university if you felt 
if you were unsure about how staff would be treated? In the short term, the answer to that is no, they won't come. They'll go to elsewhere. Now, if you go 10 years down the track, life might be different. But certainly in the shorter term, no, of course, it won't be attractive to good staff. I mean, and after all, if staff come knowing that they could be made redundant at any point, uh, then sure, they're not going to come. When they, after all, if they've got choices to go elsewhere, they'll go elsewhere. And I think the thing also is that on a broader canvas, universities worldwide tend to get larger. The only small universities that flourish are those with massive endowments, and there are very few of those anywhere, a few of them in the States, Oxford and Cambridge, those sorts of ones. Uh, but to think that a target that can decrease in size and to flourish is a pipe dream. If it would become, if, if it would become small and it would also become weak. And I think with that, its research reputation would disappear and would end up as a small local institution with little chance of attracting an international reputation or high-level scholars. And, of course, I think it would gradually wither. Now, I don't think that has to happen. Not at all. And some of us are adamant that nothing like that should, should happen. And yet what is done in the near future could lead to its demise. And I think very high-stakes game is being played out here. Could they take more time than they appear to be taking? I would think so. And uh, some of us, in our various ways, are recommending that there should be a moratorium on any cuts for a minimum of three months in order to give opportunity to look at what sort of planning there should be for the future. What do you think brought about the change in this, the way decisions are made? I get the impression you feel that um, in the past there's been better policies and a lot more, more consultation. What's changed that? Well, for whatever reason, I think we moved from what you might call a, um, you know, very much a, a congenial style to a managerial style. And that's something that's happened over the last five, eight years or so. And I think with, with bringing in more and more managers and bringing in more centralization, that's more and more than other decision-making at the departmental and the unit sort of level has disappeared. And so I think with that centralization, with that managerialism, has come everything that we are talking about now. You were in the health section, weren't you, when you were at the university, mostly? Yes. Is the humanities important? I think they're exceedingly important. Because, I mean, for me, um, you want a broad education. And uh, to have a simply a scientific health science education, good as that is, important as that is, it is only a part of what an education is. So I think for... I would say at the academic level and certainly the student level, you want a broader education. And that's something that a broad university can give. But if you start cutting down on that, you become essentially a sort of technical college. I would think with the, uh, I would think the most of the university people would hope that we continue to have an, an open world uh, where nations talk with each other, where um, we see the world in an international sense as well as a national sense. 
So isn't something like languages, even if it's, even if they're small, aren't they? Don't they have an important place? Exceedingly important, yes. I mean, I, I have no problem in saying that. Um, then how can they consider dropping languages? I can't answer that because I'm not the one doing it. But it is it is interesting, though, as you look across quite a lot of universities now in comparable countries to this one, you see more and more universities dropping languages. And I think they're doing it because of a business model. I mean, the languages are quite expensive to teach. And so if you are simply cutting back in terms of a pure financial model, you can get rid of them. Is that, this is what I hear not only at this university, that, you know, it's, it's a business, it's a commerce, but also here in the health sector, the new uh, chief of the health reform talked about health as a business. Uh, is there something weird about that? Yeah, I think it's very weird. I, I mean, it has to be a business in the sense that I mean, you know, you have to survive financially, of course. But in terms then of what you're doing, you're not simply manufacturing a whole lot of widgets or whatever they might be. Um, you are really educating people. And if you're educating people, uh, then that takes you away from this rigid, narrow business model. And, of course, once you start looking at areas of research and scholarship, uh, then you're dealing with areas which are hugely flexible or should be flexible. Um, and, and after all, we know that repeatedly things will emerge that you'd never thought about. You know, so if you bring in a business model, you want to see exactly what it'll be like, you know, down a year, five years down the track. But with a lot of research and any scholarship like that, you end up with quite unknown um, results, and you have to be flexible enough to go in some of these directions. But when we're, one of the concerns that I hear even now is, well, we will strengthen, decide which research areas we're going to keep, uh, and uh, others, well, we, we won't support. And yet, once you hear that being uh, promulgated, often we are not good at determining what will be the strong areas, and also. We are not good then at bringing in new people and new ideas and new areas, which perhaps um, are not particularly um, attractive at the moment, but they could be very, very profitable further down the line. Some countries which are no, not much larger than New Zealand and this don't have a great deal more resources like Finland have found that education is very important to their economy and to the country. And they put a lot more into education. In fact, tertiary education is free in Finland. <clears throat> Why do we assume that user pay is better for the economy and better for the country? Has it really worked out that way? It has proved very problematic. Yeah, I mean, particularly, I mean, if you, even if you look at the UK at the moment. The sort of issues that we've got here, you will see them on a very big scale in the UK for exactly these sorts of reasons. You know, we are not charging students enough. 
we should charge them more because we need more money into the universities. But then people will argue quite rightly, well, the students can't and their parents can't afford to be charged more and more. Now, if they have to pay enough, they might look at going overseas instead of going to their own universities. Oh, yeah, well, they do. And they do from here as well. I mean, I, you know, I, I think in the end, what you have got with universities is that they are international and that they are competing, and competing now in a good way internationally. They're competing for good students, but they're competing for ideas. They're competing for very uh, high-level scholars. And they move around because they see themselves in an international context rather than just a national one. And so we've got to be very careful then that we don't think too much in narrow nationalistic terms. Well, I'm going to play some music now and then we'll come back. This guitar came from a timber From the body of a tree Through the workshop of a luthier Now it's on loan to me And it's good company after dinner And it fits my hands just fine But someday another singer With a pair of hands like mine Will coax out songs much prettier Still hiding in its strings Sing stronger, braver words than I could ever sing And folks are gonna love it Of this I'm almost sure So I take good care of it Cause I'm borrowing it from her Pass it along Pass it along May it land in careful hands when we're gone Carry it for a moment Time won't loan it to you for long You don't own it Pass it along This here is my country Sometimes it's hard to recognize it But I count myself lucky To have been born inside it And I'm grateful for the rights Others struggle hard to win And you can be sure I'm gonna fight They try and take them back again Oh, and everywhere teachers Though some fell along the way And the words they said still reach us Just like you're teaching me here today And you may not speak it loud But it's clear in what you do And I hope to make you proud Cause I borrowed it from you Pass it along Pass it along May it land in careful hands when we're gone You carry it for a moment But time won't loan it to you for long You don't own it, pass it along Thank you. 
days we're in a hurry to grab up all that's left to use. Putting patents on discovery, making seeds that don't reproduce. If our vision is so narrow, seeing only bought and sold, we'll end up like the pharaohs, buried with their gold. We've all pushed this thing along. We've all been guided by our fear. But the river sings a song. We've gotta be quieter to hear. It's in every child's face, new and hopeful as a stem. Best be gentle with this place, 'cause we're borrowing it from them. Pass it along, pass it along. Made land and careful hands when we're gone. You carry it for a moment. Time won't loan it to you for long. You don't own it. Pass it along. Pass it along. Pass it along. May it land in careful hands when we're gone. You carry it for a moment. Time won't loan it to you for long. You don't own it. Pass it along. That was Scott Cook. Pass the future along. The、um, we're talking with、uh, Professor Gareth Jones about the crisis of the university. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz, then going to podcast, and then going to community or chaos. Do when we think of the education now, we're almost taught to think of it as an individual thing, as something you can buy. That、um, you know, we end up. Where education, we don't individually build the universities. We don't get the structure together. We don't、um, choose who the professors are. We we depend on each other. We de- it's a community. A university is a community. Most of the things that are really important in life seem to me. To be a community things. Why do we think that we individually own them, and that our obligations are just to ourselves? I would say that、uh, a university is a community of scholars. Now, that's a, perhaps a very old-fashioned term,、uh, but it is people who. Come from different backgrounds, have different disciplinary interests, have different probably philosophical interests, but they are working together in order to provide、uh, new ideas, new scholarship, and also to educate new generation of students. So it's very much working together. And I think this is the trouble when you start getting to a more managerial system. It's the feel that you've got people who are not experts up there, who are able to determine what the people at the coalface are doing, should be doing, and 
what is right and proper, if you like. Um, but it's the, it's the problem then of having non-experts telling experts what they should do. Now, it doesn't mean to say that we can't all learn from each other. Of course we can. But having said that, when you've got people who are being driven by whether it's various uh, social impetus, financial strains, whatever it might be, once they start then trying to determine exactly what should happen uh, at the coalface, then I think you've got problems. And I think that's what you're seeing now. Well, what would you like to see happen at the university? And you obviously question if the university is considering things carefully enough. What priorities would you like to see? Priorities I'd like to see as a very strong research and teaching reputation, which of course is something which doesn't come overnight, but which has to be built up. And I think overall in Otago, I mean, it has been built up. What our concerns now are that it could be lost. But I think a strong research and teaching reputation, I think clear um, scholarly priorities, obviously strong financial management, but as far as possible, a relatively flat management structure. Uh, in other words, all the time welcoming input from what I call the coalface, you know, from the academics and those like them who are actually then producing the information, ideas, etc. cetera. Uh, and I think then this comes down to what are the values of the university, now, it's very interesting that um, just uh, three or four years ago, uh, the university did a big exercise, which was to develop its um, staff values. And what came out of those were respect, integrity, curiosity, and community. And then they worked those out in some sort of detail. Uh, and I think what is a part of that is, and I agree with them, I don't think they're following them at the moment. They seem to have forgotten about them. Uh, but I think openness, transparency, taking staff into consideration, wanting feedback from your various experts, all this, I think, is required to, break, to really engender this strong research and teaching uh, reputation. And some of it is often fraught. I mean, after all, I mean, academics can be brilliant. They can also sometimes be uh, a bit uh, stupid. They don't always have good ideas. But I think it's that... Um, living with ideas, living with conf conflicting ideas, living with different concepts, and some, somehow coming together and utilizing them for the common good, which I think is what one wants, what one does see in a healthy institution. What would you have them do right now, besides ask for more money from the government? And do you have any sense of how the government's going to? If the government's going to step in with women. I don't know. All I can say is I don't think that governments now of, of both sides of the house have been actually very, um, uh, very generous towards universities for quite a number of years. This is not a new phenomenon. Now, it might have got worse with the increasing... Um, uh, with, the, with the increasing interest rates, etc., etc. Um, but... They, they haven't been known for their generosity towards higher education. 
clearly one would like to see more of that. But on the other hand, uh, while university leaders get fed up with uh, politicians saying, well, we give you the money, you have to decide how to spend it, there is an element of truth in that as well. Uh, so, I mean, what I think at the moment is required at, at Otago is that people need to see how the money has been spent. And some people are calling for a financial audit, and I would agree with that. Um, because you look at how much, uh, at what is said to be, what we, how much we need to save, that, that what's now become almost a mythical figure of $60 million, which is obviously a considerable amount of money. When you look at that and you can see that's not entirely due to student numbers. It's due to all sorts of other things, like obviously spending money on buildings. Now, we all know money has to be spent on buildings, etc. But what we don't know is how wise all that spending has been. To what extent has any of that led to the financial problems? The ex what appears to be extremely, well, extensive use of outside consultants. How much is that spending? How much has that contributed to where we are at the moment? I mean, I think when people would like to know just why is it that we are in this particular position at the moment? Well, one of, the, one of the things that I question is when you get outside financial advice by these professionals from often from America but from other places too, they have a very orthodox way of thinking about the economy and money and and are sympathetic to private ownership and are unsympathetic to um other ways of looking at the economy. Well, one has to ask then, I mean, what is their track record? What is their track record? Because I assume that they've been advising other universities and are advising other universities. What is the track record? Uh, and what is the sort of the social and ethical driving force behind these particular consultancies? And is it something that one wants in our own university? Now, to what extent any of that has been done, I have no idea. But I would certainly like to see that. And I would like then also to see us saying, well, how much of this expertise do we actually have within our own campus and our own university? If staff have to be let go. Should it all come from the academic staff, or should it, you know, maybe there are too many layers of management? I see. I I think one has to look at and say, well, I mean, I mean, one of my dictum for many years now has been that the only people who earn money for the university are students, and with students. Of course, the staff who teach them, the research they do, that brings in money as well. By definition, no administrators or managers, our managers ever bring in money to the university. Now, that doesn't mean to say we have no administrators or managers. Of course not. Uh, but what it is telling us in this instance is if you cut um, – Academics from discipline A, discipline B, or whatever it might be, or from profession C or D, then that will have huge implications down the line for a long time, very big ones. Uh, 
On the other hand, have we got too many layers of managers? I think most people would say the answer is yes, unless perhaps unless they're the managers. But we would say yes. Um, and if you lost some of those, then one would think that would have relatively little influence on the university as a university. Whereas if you get more academics you get rid of, then that will have huge implications. The other thing I would like to say here is too, I don't think there's any evidence that it's the academics and academic endeavor which has led to these financial problems. Now, there's no doubt one can always improve the efficiency of how you teach, etc. And it may well be that sometimes we have too many papers and we have overlap between different departments. Then, oh, sure, that needs to be looked at. But it needs to be looked at educationally, not simply because there are financial issues. So I think we could probably save some money there. But that would be probably on a relatively small scale to the problem that we are actually faced with. How much centralization of authority is appropriate? And do departments need a certain amount of autonomy when it comes to departments and research and when it comes to making academic decisions? I think very simply, centralization is the bane of everyone's life, certainly as we have it at the moment. Now, obviously, it, it's useful, not useful, it's essential for certain projects regarding buildings, etc., etc. That has to be centralized. But it's simply destabilizing when it comes to academic decisions and directions, because the further one moves away from the people who are actually producing the information, the ideas, doing the teaching, the further you get into non-expert territory. And non-experts are simply that. They're naive or ignorant unless very well informed by the experts of the coalface and unless they listen to them because they don't know enough about the currents and the flows of the academic debate. Because as I think I've already said, new directions will always come, only come from those who are actively involved in the area in question. Uh, new directions will only be recognized by those who know what to look out for and they're prepared to take risks and chart new directions. And there'll always be risks involved in this, but that's a part of what we are doing in any academic area. And after all, as one knows, new research often comes out of nowhere. Now, you can see this in any area, but it's probably best to see in some of the health sciences uh, where, you know, you'll find that um, a particular therapy or something will come totally unexpectedly. I mean, no one had expected, no one had worked for it, but someone had come across something and then had developed it. And so a lot of the uh, things are serendipitous uh, and sometimes they cross disciplinary areas. And so there must be a huge amount of flexibility if you're going to make use of um, what becomes available. But by and large, we, and we as everyone, is not good at predicting the future in these areas. How would you... Um Raise staff morale if you were vice chancellor by treating them and uh, by trusting them and respecting them. Uh, uh, and I think to say that well, we know they are capable of making decisions about the directions and the future of the university. You've also got to keep them informed, and they must be seen as part of the important decision making within the university. 
So I say I would say those two terms, trust and respect. And once you have those, then you treat academic staff as adults worthy of being taken seriously and not just dismissed and say, well, we, I'm sorry, we have to get rid of you. Okay, I'm going to play some more music and we'll come back.
Well, friends, that was um, the best of Mimi and Richard Farimi back from the 60s, and we're talking with Professor Garf Jones on the crisis at the university, which I think reflects a, a larger crisis in society. What do you think when you hear the phrase, the common good? Now, What's have, your first reaction? Now, I, I probably it's not a term that I use very much, if at all. Uh, but I think my immediate uh, response would be to say, well, it's that which is best for all of us, individually and corporately. And you know, so what's best for society? In this case, I think, talked with university, it's Dunedin, New Zealand, and humankind. Now, <coughs> excuse me, that might sound grandiose. Yet, of course, some of the work done at any one time in a university is of very general interest and significance, way beyond the local community. And so I would say to dispose of many of the academic staff will satisfy nothing beyond a very narrow view and very short-sighted view of finances, and certainly will not uphold the common good. It seems to me the crisis at the University of Otago is not singular, though the university management has probably made mistakes and brought some of it on themselves. But it's not singular to Otago University or even to universities. You've seen it in all our public institutions. Mm -hmm. You've seen it in the, particularly in the health sector. Mm -hmm. And I think think it's the idea that we may have lost the uh, va the value and the vision of the common good when we changed our economic direction in mm -hmm. the late 80s. The, you know, at the same time this has happened, in the RD, the Inland Revenue Survey found that the wealthiest families in New Zealand pay less than half what ordinary citizens pay in taxes. Now, it means to me that that doesn't say much for the value of the common good. What does it mean for New Zealand and our citizens if, if we lose the value of the common good? Well, I think one would like to believe that the government, etc., wants a highly educated and an informed population. And this will largely come, in terms of what we are talking about now, of course, through higher quality education, higher education. But and so a flourishing higher education system adds to the common good by producing inquisitive and creative individuals. And because, after all, these are the people who will lead in future and who will add value to whatever they do. But, as I think we've been already been saying, the funding of successive governments suggests this is not one of their foremost values. Their interest in higher education appears to be minimal. 
So the reality is that universities have to go outside to attract additional income. Now, few universities flourish in the absence of external non-government funding. And that's why many vice-chancellors spend much of their time outside the university attempting to convince people to give to the university. And this is, of course, where alumni come into the picture. But quite apart from the relatively small amounts most alumni are able to give to their alum, 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 alma mater, and these are very gratefully received, but very well philanthropists can make enormous difference to universities. Unfortunately, there's only a limited amount of this in New Zealand, where philanthropists are not known for their large giving to the university sector, unlike, of course, in some countries. And so I think with this in mind, universities have to attract large gifts. And much of this tends to go to the health sector with possible discoveries of therapeutic value. But if a university is seen to be performing poorly, it's less likely to be seen as an attractive proposition for large gifts. This then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Do well and be in to increase your financial income or do poorly and you will suffer further financially. Now, and I think it's. I, I think I'd have to disagree with you about universities depending on philanthropy. I, I look at Yale and Harvard and, and um, the universities, the Ivy League universities in America, and what they they depend on philanthropy, but they also have a highly class structured system. You don't normally you don't get into those universities unless you come from a very well-educated, wealthy family. And your chances of getting in are much better if your uh, parents went to one of those universities. And America has become a very stratified society. And education is getting harder and harder to pay for and get. So I don't think that uh, private universities, depending on philanthropy, are the answer to education. Certainly they aren't the answer to a better society. I'm not sure that I would, I mean, I think the American situation is a particular one. Um, and I would not see, and, and I, I'm not sure to what extent you can take that model, good and bad, into other, into other, into other, into other, into other countries. So, I mean, and, and I think that the Yales of this world, Harvard's, et cetera, they stand out as being totally different, uh, from anything that we could possibly want or, possibly have. But I don't think that that uh, says that we shouldn't be looking for philanthropy. I'm not against giving to universities, but I'm against education depending on it. I think, it, yes, I mean, I, I don't think it should depend on it. But, but I think it, when you have a situation where governments are not providing sufficient for the university sector, then you really have to go out and try and get more elsewhere. Why do you think governments aren't giving enough to education and health? Because they don't uh, value them sufficiently. That could be part of it. But is the other the fact that we our taxes have changed. We have GST and we look many people and many institutions don't pay their share of taxation. Sure. And that might be the real answer to what's going on in healthcare and education. They're symptomatic of the fact the government can't finance the institutions 
as they need to. I'm no, I'm no economist, so I'm not going to get far into this, I can assure you. Uh, but, I mean, having said that, it really is up to governments how they, how they tax and what their tax system is. So, I mean, I think that's all a part of that issue. But, I mean, in looking now at the Otago situation at the, in the moment, I think that um, those very, very big issues only contribute to us in a small degree to what we have as our particular problem at the moment. Okay. Remember, 10 years ago, we did not have this problem. And yet probably the general situation within society wasn't that different to what it is now. Okay, I hope that um, they can find a way forward. And uh, do you think they will find a way forward so they can get over this lump and uh, continue without losing so many valuable staff members? It is very difficult to answer that at the moment. But I would say hopefully, and I am hopeful here, that the answer is yes. But it really does, I think, have to depend upon considerable feedback, which is taken seriously from certainly senior members of staff within the university. And I think, you know, what probably the senior leadership team at the moment needs is a is really is an advisory committee of senior professors from across the institution and with people with considerable um, expertise and experience in leadership in order to provide uh, advice and advice which, of course, would be taken. Okay, thank you very much for coming in and uh, I hope that um, we can rebuild trust and find a way forward for it. Not only for the university, yes, but certainly. for the sacred Denise. Yes. Well, thank you very much. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.